Welcome to Unlock Your Mindset with me, Steve Rawlingson. Get ready to open the door to a world of business, entrepreneurship, and the art of achieving remarkable success. We'll focus on emotional, intellectual, social, and adversity intelligence, and how each of these traits are crucial to unlocking your mindset. The journey to success starts here, so let's go. Nigel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about your journey and your mindset in terms of what you believe it takes to achieve greatness. Do you want to just introduce yourself and summarise your journey to date? Nigel Mills, born in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. I was educated at King School Tynemouth. King School was for the entrepreneurial children. Most of the people I went to school with, parents owned their own businesses. So that was quite an entrepreneurial environment to be part of. After school, went to Lancaster University, studied economics, accountancy and law, because I always wanted to run my own business. Then came back to the northeast Newcastle and worked as a, uh, for Price Waterhouse as an article clerk, qualified as a chartered accountant in 1984, then went to London and worked for Price Waterhouse there for a couple of years, just ahead of uh, Big Bang when the market was deregulated in the city. Came back to the northeast, bought a small chain of uh, what turned out to be convenience stores, and over 25 years built that into a national chain with about 170 million turnover and about 2,000 employees, and sold that business in March 2011 to Tesco's. It was an amazing journey, 25 years. We reinvented the business at least three times during that period and also encountered challenges, not just from within the industry, but also from the legislators who changed the laws on the products that we were selling and added other restrictions. So it was a fascinating journey, um, one with many, many challenges. Uh, during that journey, I also set up a small chain of hotels. We had three in the Lake District National Park, which was interesting to be in another industry. And also I had a small property company portfolio that we developed. The big challenge over the last 10 or 12 years has been the Lakes Distillery, which I became involved in in April 2012, around about a year after I'd sold the shops. And I read in a newsletter that was published by an architect's firm that I used in Cumbria, that they just got planning consent to build a single malt whiskey distillery in Cumbria. And I had a hotel nearby and I thought, wonderful, they're going to build a distillery, they're going to have visitors, we've got a hotel, so I'll meet with them and see if we can benefit from that development. So I met with a guy called Paul Curry, who had secured the premises. It was an old Victorian model farm, hamlet called Set Murthy at the top of Bathenswaite Lake, about eight miles north of Keswick. Showed him the hotel and then I said to him, when are you going to build a distillery? And he said, actually, we haven't got any money. And I thought, well, this is interesting. It's difficult to grow grapes <laughs> north of Yorkshire. I, through the convenience stores, had watched how the wine industry had changed over 20 or 30 years when you had old world wine where nobody understood grape varieties or it was very difficult to buy wine unless you knew the village, you knew the types of grapes that they grew, etc., etc. And at that time, you'd only buy wine from Italy, Germany, Spain or France. Along came the New Zealanders and the Australians and they took the best of the old production techniques. They added a greater rigor to the process and they produced fantastic wines and they made buying wine very, very simple by putting the name of the grape on the label. So that demystified it. And then what happened was over the decades, the UK became one of the prime markets for wine growers around the world because as the UK population palates matured and they understood the different types of wine, they drank more and more and better and better. And I actually thought that the whiskey industry was ripe for that sort of change because you'd had up to that point, I knew not a lot about the whiskey industry. I knew about Scotch being the dominant brand across the world and single malt Scotch whiskey was amongst 
the most highly prized or revered uh, single malts in the world. And I thought that that was going to happen to whiskey. So this was going to be English whiskey. At that time, there's one other whiskey distillery down in Norfolk in England. There were only three distilleries in Ireland and very few independent distilleries in Scotland. So I thought, oh, a little bit bored. I quite fancy a challenge. I thought there was an opportunity in the market. I said to Paul, right, off we go. I sat down and we wrote a business plan. And because whiskey takes three years in the cask before it could be called whiskey, we built a business plan with multiple revenue streams. So that was the visitor center at the distillery. We also created a world-class bistro at the distillery. So we looked at what the French vineyards are done where you can go and experience the winemaking process. You can have a fantastic meal at the vineyard and you can go away with a bottle. And that's how they sort of create brand loyalty and things like that. So we, we created that for the lakes. We also were going to sell gin and vodka, which you can make much more quickly based on the lakes brand through wholesale in the UK, through export. And we also uh, at the time set up an internet business so we could sell directly to the consumers. So all in all, we had around about seven different income streams. I was one of the founding members of the Entrepreneurs Forum. And what I've learned throughout my life is that what you don't know, go and ask somebody. So before we set off, I said to a gentleman called John Wall, who sadly passed away since now, who was the chairman of Prince's Trust. I said, do you know anybody in the whiskey industry that can perhaps help us? And he said, yes, there's a gentleman called Dr. Alan Rutherford, OBE, who's the world's leading authority on the Scotch whiskey industry. And he has just moved back to the Northeast, where he came from originally, having lived in Scotland most of his working career. And he's the guy to talk to. So I got his contact details, sent the business plan to Alan Rutherford, and he came back to me and said, it's a great plan. He said that you've got lots of income streams because whiskey's the long game, and you've got a wonderful site in the Lake District National Park. Many, many visitors come into that park each year, so there's lots of opportunity to build your brand with those visitors. And yes, it should work. And I said to him, yes, Alan, but it's English whiskey. He said, ah, but the world's changing, and there's going to be a thing called New World Whiskey that will emerge over the coming years. And I thought, that's interesting, because that's what I thought as well. And I didn't know anything about the industry. I said, Alan, if you're so sure about this, will you become our mentor and our chairman and put your name and reputation alongside our business? And he said, oh, yes. So off we went. So we had the credibility of Paul Curry, who'd been involved in a previous distillery in Scotland. We had one of the world's leading authorities on the Scotch whiskey industry who understood that there was an opportunity for new world whiskey at some stage in the future. And we set about raising the money to build this business. Is this in equity? Well, I was told at the time that if we raised six million pounds, we could build the whiskey distillery. We could do everything at the end of the day, build a profitable business. As it turns out, we've raised 35 million pounds to date and we still need to raise more. However, part of the problem was that we set out with a vision to create a global luxury whiskey brand, which was incredibly ambitious. Thank goodness. I didn't really understand what that entailed. Was that from day one, that this, one. this is our ambition? In my early 50s, I had built, as just, I explained before, other businesses. I figured that if I was going to do anything with the last 10 years of my life, it has to be something that's absolutely amazing. Otherwise, why bother? It also sounds it's a bit, I mean, I have to think about my journey and I guess there is kind of things that happen in that journey where you believe, you have to believe in fate, but the, the chances of you meeting Paul when you did and then Alan moving up to the Northeast when he did and you being free and a bit bored when you were and you bring all of that together, it's, it's kind of a bit like, it's just like the perfect story. Well, it is the perfect story, but what I found throughout my career as an entrepreneur is that there's opportunity all around you. It's about recognizing what that opportunity might be and then having the courage to do something about it. 
And it may be just making a few phone calls and then sort of walking away, or it could be making a few phone calls and finding out that there are other people believe in the business that you are thinking about. They may even want to help you. And that's the most important thing because none of us get anywhere in this world without an awful lot of help from an awful lot of people. So it's about asking questions. It's about asking for help. It's about ambition. It's about optimism. It's about positivity, all of that and curiosity. I agree. Let, let's come back to the, the Lake Distillery and find out what, what's next for yourself. But let's go back to the start. When you King School, then you go to university to study economics. You said at the start that you always wanted to start your own business. At what age did you break away from being employed to actually being a, an employer? I really have only had one job, which was with Price Waterhouse as an article clerk to, yeah. to qualify as a chartered accountant. So I've had one job. And then in 86, came back to the Northeast, mortgaged everything that we had, including my grandmother's house, my parents' house, sold my house. Thank God I was 27 years old and thought you could conquer the world because I look back on those risks now and I think there's no way I'd ever do that again. And how amazing was it that the family backed me? And did you, with the convenience stores, did you, at the point of you buying the convenience stores to get the business going, did you have a big audacious plan with that business or was it kind of like, I'll see what I can do with it. Or did you think how I'm going to have, you know, 200 shops around the EU? We were always looking to scale the business and always try to make it a national business. I mean, with the shops, we started off as news agents. And then in 1994, the government changed the rules that that prior to 94, news agents had a monopoly over the sale of papers. So your business model was all about leveraging that monopoly because people had to come to you to buy papers. In those days, people bought newspapers. So it was about taking your USP, which at the time was selling newspapers and magazines, and then leveraging that and selling more to that customer base. In 1994, the government deregulated the market, which meant that anybody could sell newspapers and magazines. And that's really interesting because, you know, you've got a business plan that's uh, working. You've got a sunny blue skies ahead, and then all of a sudden the government changes the legislation and you find that your turnover on your core product drops 40% overnight. So effectively, you go from profit into loss. The good news was in November 94, the government launched the National Lottery. And what I managed to do was to get the lottery uh, franchise for every one of our stores during that summer. And I was very lucky as well because the government set up, well, the, not the government, but uh, Camelot, who were running the lottery franchise, set up a regional office in Sunderland. And I was able to camp on the door of that regional office for six months and make sure that every one of our stores had a national lottery terminal. And when it launched in 1994, the sales per site were enormous. They were around about 10,000 a week at 5% commission. And that put back the profit that we lost through the change in legislation, the rules governing the sale of newspapers. So in business, you never know where the challenge is going to come from but there's always a silver lining if you can find it. I agree. What's the mindset that you've got when them challenges arise? Like when you were scaling a business from 2 million to 170 million over 25 years, I can imagine you've you faced some huge challenges. What gets you through them challenges? I think I'm just lucky that the bigger the challenge, the bigger the opportunity. I'm just really irritating that way. I will not be beaten at the end of the day. You strike me as somebody who probably likes it when there's challenges there rather than just the mundane blue skies. And maybe this is one for the listeners, but is that the entrepreneurial flair within you and within other entrepreneurs? Is he, well, you're not an operator because that would get a bit boring. Is it kind of like, well, actually, I want the challenges to be there. I want to be scaling. I want to be pushing the business. So, you know, that's where you excel. Looking back to the sort of retail side, I, I loved operating it. 
but I also liked the challenge of growing the business mm -hmm. and developing the business. And I think with hindsight, it would have been a really good thing. I think I read an article recently that said that, you know, with any business after three years, the entrepreneur should get a managing director, get them to run the business day to day. And then for the entrepreneur to look at the strategy and look at the horizon and scale the business, because it's two very different skills and it takes, it's a full-time job to do both. And so, you know, with hindsight, that's perhaps something that I could have done a lot better with the retail side of the business. And if I'd done that, perhaps we would have been a much bigger company. Let me ask you this. Do you believe, and I've asked all the guests this, do you believe that entrepreneurs are born or do you believe that they're made? The definition of entrepreneurship is so wide and I think it's both. I think that I've met some fantastic entrepreneurs that have come out of big business who started off not wanting to run their own businesses, but were more than happy with corporate life, then found corporate life frustrating in terms of the uh, the sort of the narrowness of the remit in there and the opportunities that were missed because the process didn't allow them to go in a certain direction. So I think it's both. With the Entrepreneurs Forum, which was set up in the Northeast, there were two things that we focused on. One was the power of storytelling to inspire people to do different things. And two was the power of mentoring. You know, 70% of companies that have a mentor survive for more than five years. 35% of companies survive for five years if they don't have a mentor. So you double your chance of survival. So it's not just about having an entrepreneurial mindset, but it's also having that ability to ask for help when you don't know. I'm a part of the Entrepreneurs Forum. You know, if I look back in over my 10 years of being a business owner, they played a big part in mentoring me and putting me in contact with the right people. And it's amazing that it's still going locally for Northeast business owners and entrepreneurs. It's unique to the Northeast. And I think it's because the Northeast is in a way isolated from the rest of the UK. And I think we in the Northeast help each other. Whereas in other parts of the country, there is less willingness to share. And I think that's the strength of the area and it has served as well. Tell me, what, if you look back on your career as an entrepreneur, what's been one of the greatest achievements that you're most proud of? Making the payroll every month. There's probably a lot of entrepreneurs who say the same thing I, to me. I think, you know, when you build a business, you're persuading people to join you, you're persuading people to support your idea, your vision. Imagine if you can't pay them at the end of the month. Horrendous. Do you know what? That's probably one of the best answers that we've had on the show because they put facades out there and say, oh, well, this achievement or that achievement. But I agree, making payroll. Looking back over your mindset, because obviously you're still an entrepreneur, you're still active, you're still out there building and scaling a business, which probably it sounds amazing. It sounds very challenging to say that you want to build a global luxury brand. What motivates you, Nigel, in terms of getting out of bed? You wake up every day and you find something new has either in the news or in on your mobile or a message or whatever else. And so what motivates me is that every day brings fresh opportunity. Every day brings you the ability to further develop your business or your business ideas and so on and so forth. And I just think that's really exciting. And we're on this earth once. And you might as well do something that you really like doing. And challenges and opportunity for me is what life's all about. When you were at school, if someone said to you, fast forward in 50 years, this is the life that you're going to have and some of the things that you're going to have achieved. Did you think at that point when you were at school that you would be where you are today and build the businesses that you've built? And I think when you're younger and you're starting out, it's an incredibly frustrating time because you have the ambition, but you don't have the opportunity or the ability. You don't have the skills. So you sort of run around like a headless chicken trying to work out where you fit, where is the opportunity, what is it that I can do that allows me to fulfill that ambition. So it's a very, very frustrating time. You look back over your life and for me, I 
think I should have achieved more. I recognise all the mistakes that I made. I think I turned, talked earlier about, you know, that position of managing director, the operational side versus the strategic side. I wish I'd known about that or appreciated that more. I could achieve more, but then again, I look back and see what we have achieved and the fact that we're still here and we're still fighting, that's an achievement in its own right. But I think that's, for most entrepreneurs, enough is never enough. They always want to achieve more. So the biggest lesson in your entrepreneurial journey then, what, what is that lesson? What you don't know, ask for help, but also recognize within the business that you are what you're good at and don't try and reinvent the wheel and do other people's jobs. Bring people into the business who are better than you, motivate them, reward them, share the vision, and the business will move much more quickly and be more successful. And in terms of your future ambitions then for the Lakes Distillery, let's come to where you are now. Well, the Lakes Distillery so far has raised about 35 million pounds. Our vision is still to create a global luxury single malt whiskey brand. It's now been refined in that we want to own 1% of the global luxury dark spirits market. Luxury dark spirits are those defined at selling for over 85 pounds a bottle equivalent. That's exactly where the Lakes Distillery is now. The global market is worth around about 42 million bottles at the moment, so 1% is 420,000 bottles. It's forecast to grow to over 6 million bottles over the next three years, so it's one of the fastest growing part of the whiskey industry. We now clearly see old world whiskey and new world whiskey being talked about. Old world whiskey being Canadian, US, Irish, Scotch and Japanese, and then countries around the world are sort of new world whiskey, including England. We currently own 4% of the luxury dark spirits market in the UK. And that's through a strategy that we've developed in London by targeting restaurants, bars, the top end restaurants, the top end bars, hotels. In Europe, in Belgium and Holland, we own around about 3% of that market. The vision to create the global luxury single malt whiskey brand is now becoming a reality. There's a long, long way to go. There's more money to invest, but we have the empirical evidence that we've done it in the UK with a 4% share. We've done it in the Benelux countries with a 3% share. It's really exciting. We've also not just created the Lakes Distillery as a single malt whiskey distillery, but we also helped create an industry in the UK. The Lakes were part of a group of distillers who created the English Whiskey Guild, which is the trade body representing English whiskey. We appointed our first CEO, a lady called Morag Garden, in April of this year, 23. She now is tasked with promoting English whiskey both in the UK and around the world. We have registered with DEFRA, it's called a GI, a geographical identity, which defines English whiskey. And if we get the GI, effectively you define English whiskey as a brand, as a product uh, specific to England. We're well on the way in terms of creating that global luxury whiskey brand, but we've also come a long way in terms of creating a new industry. I think you've disrupted the industry from the sounds of it. We haven't disrupted the industry. What we've done is that English whiskey is helping to grow the global market. And that was really interesting because along the journey, we tried to raise money through Distill Ventures, which is the venture capital arm of Diageo, which is the largest spirits company in the world. Twice I went to see them and they said to me, what are you doing? They said, oh, we're making English whiskey, maturing in bourbon casks. And they said, yeah, 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 go away. The third time they came to see us, we had developed our sherry-led wood-forward flavor-packed strategy in terms of our single malt whiskey, which means that invest a lot of money in the casks in which the spirit matures in. What that allows us to do is to create different flavor profiles and different casks. We end up with a warehouse full of flavors. So rather like an artist before they paint the masterpiece, you start off with a palette of colors and then you mix those colors into shades of light 
and dot. We have a warehouse full of whis maturing whiskey with different flavor profiles. You then take some of the world's great whiskey makers, and we were lucky to have a gentleman called Davil Gandhi, who was with us since 2016, and he helped us win the World's Best Single Malt Whiskey Award, which was an incredible, incredible achievement. First time English whiskey has ever won such a prestigious award. It's an international competition based in London. You have to win your country's award first. Yeah. We then go head to head with 25 other countries around the world, including Old World Whiskey and New World Whiskey. It's a blind tasting and we won. But interestingly, we won and they looked and said, no, 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 it's English whiskey, it can't be right. So they sent the samples out again and blind tasted again and we won the second time. So then they gave us the award which was incredible. What happens when you achieve your big audacious plan for you within the distillery then? You achieve everything that you set out to achieve. You become the number one luxury and whiskey provider. You take your place on the global stage in terms of being part of uh, that sort of elite brands in the luxury dark spirits market. It's an incredible relief because you've promised everybody that you would deliver on this. So the first emotion is relief. There is a huge amount of satisfaction and pride in what you've done and then you look for the next challenge where this podcast came from is i'm studying masters in psychology and business and one of the things that i want to do after my journey with samuel knight is probably do a phd in the entrepreneurial mindset and there was four things that really stuck out for me in terms of what i thought were the characteristics of an entrepreneur and one was the intellectual intelligence so you got to be pretty clever you have to be clever you have to have a level of iq the emotional intelligence so you have to show the empathy and you have to know how to understand people's emotions and deal with different people. The social element, can you build long lasting relationships? And then finally, the adversity. A lot of people who I've spoken to, certainly on this show and the entrepreneurs that I know in my world have at some point in their life faced some form of adversity. And I'm not saying that that's the right way or the wrong way, that's just my mindset. I have to prove that if I do a PhD. You know, you're a huge successful entrepreneur and someone who's highly regarded locally and more so around the, the UK. What do you think then key characteristics are that set entrepreneurs apart from, from others? I think it's how they deal with adversity. But just to wind back on that, first of all, they have a vision and what they'd like to do. They're prepared to back that vision with a passion. They are prepared to go through adversity. And what happens with any business idea is you start with an idea, but then if it eventually becomes commercially viable, it's very different from the original idea. So I think that you need to understand that there is a journey to go through to make your vision commercially viable. And what is essential to understand that and to deliver on the changes necessary is to talk to other people, to ask for help, to have that mentor or a number of mentors around you. You know, some of the best decisions that you make in business are no, and it's hard to take because if you have a passion for something and you believe that what you're doing is absolutely the right thing and somebody tells you that actually it's wrong and these are the reasons, you have to be smart enough to listen to that, rationalize it and act on it. And if you don't, you can end up going the wrong direction and end up going bust yeah. and not being successful. So you have to be adaptable. You have to be, humility plays a huge part. When I set up the Lakes Distillery and then started to raise money for it and had been very successful in other businesses, you know, some people turned around and said, actually, Nigel Mills will never even buy the stills, never mind build a whiskey distillery. One guy who looked at the business plan had two consultants look at it, who both said that it'll never happen. And then he came after me for the fees that he'd paid the consultants. You have to take rejection well. You have to learn how to rationalize advice that you don't like. You may not always follow it, but you need to think it through and work out whether it's right or wrong. There will always be elements that are right. And if you don't adapt, if you don't change, if you're not humble, if you're not prepared to put 
the hard yards in, the likelihood is you won't succeed. And so I think it's, it's, it's all of those attributes. Above all else, you have to believe. You have to believe. Interesting, there's a, there's a very good book. I read lots of books about successful entrepreneurs and also venture capitalists. And there's a book written by Ben Horowitz, who was a CEO, and then he set up Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the most successful venture capital companies mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. In that book, he took, he took his experience as a CEO. And when he was a venture capitalist, he used that experience to pick people in businesses that he would back because businesses are all about people. You know, entrepreneur, leader, whatever you want to call them. At the end of the day, it's only you that gets the job done. Nobody else. It's only you that gets it wrong or it's only you that gets it right. You can't blame other people. And 30 years on, he's a better CEO than he was when he was CEO because nobody teaches you to be a CEO. To be a CEO, you learn through experience. Yes, you can have the basic business knowledge and building blocks, but the CEO is about experience. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding which way the wind's blowing, where the track leading to, and all the rest of it, in instinct to an extent. When he interviewed all the successful CEOs, the biggest achievement they said for them was they never gave up. They never gave up. It's an unbelievable way to end the show for Marty Snigel because, you know, what more can you say in terms of dealing with adversity, being adaptable, and just never giving up. And I'm sure out of the show that we've done, this is probably going to inspire a lot of people. Nigel, thank you very much for coming on and spending some time with us. And uh, we wish you all the best with the Lakes Distillery. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and good luck with your business as well. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe to Unlock Your Mindset with me, Steve Rawlingson.